All right, we're in Matthew chapter 5 again today. So here's a question for you to ponder today. What is the Christian's purpose in this world? You say, that is that even a relevant question? Of course it is. Uh, you know, because we hear that Christians are citizens of heaven. We're just passing through this world. This world is temporary, even our... Uh, bodies at the moment are temporary so uh do we have a purpose in this world and and if we do what is it so that those are important matters that jesus addresses here in matthew 5 jesus christ summarizes the purpose of christians in this world he's not going to go into great detail but what he does say is really helpful here and and reduced to one word the function that you have, if you're a believer in Christ, the function you have in this world is influence. You are to be an influence. Jesus has been teaching here, starting the beginning of chapter 5, he's been talking about these beatitudes, these attitudes, as somebody has said, attitudes that ought to be in you. <laughs> so these attitudes, these beatitudes are are important and whoever lives according to them is going to function in this world as salt and light and i'll explain more about what that is in a moment but why is that why well because christians uh, uh, christian character affects other people so you can have an influence or for evil or you can have an influence for good you can have an influence for better or for worse but do you understand the point you're going to have an influence as John Dunn reminds us, no man is an island. No woman is an island either, by the way. Uh, you, you, you don't stand alone, in other words. You're in this world, and you do have an influence. Now, here's a mandate here from Jesus for Christians to influence the world. The, <coughs> excuse me. The Beatitudes are not to be lived in isolation. Uh, or just amongst believers, right? Or otherwise it wouldn't make, you know, those verses we looked at last week, verses 10, 11, and 12, wouldn't make a whole lot of sense, would they? I mean, because Jesus says one of the marks of a, of a true Christian here is persecution. And you're to do that, as he says in verse 10, for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Somebody has said, you might be the only Bible that somebody ever reads. Think about that. You might be the only Bible that someone reads. And the point is, uh, are you glorifying God or not? Are you giving the right opinion of God or not? So if someone looks at you, what opinion do they have of God? Hopefully it's an accurate one. So the figures of salt and light are emphasizing different characters uh, uh sorry characteristics of influence but nevertheless their purpose is pretty much the same so let's look at uh as we're kind of delving into the jesus teaching here let's look at the words of the living god starting in verse 13 matthew 5 verse 13 jesus says you are the salt of the earth but if salt has lost its taste how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 
You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the proposition from those few verses there today is just basically this, that God wants you to have a godly influence on people. So you're going to have an influence. Hopefully you understand that Jesus wants you to have a godly influence on other people. Jesus has been telling us here all these attitudes that ought to be in us. He's he's gone on things like humility and repentance and so forth, uh, uh, you know, meekness. He wants you to have this hunger and this thirst for righteousness. He wants you to be merciful. He wants you to have a pure heart. He wants you to be a peacemaker. And the last characteristic of a true believer is you are persecuted. That's what that's what a true Christian looks like. <laughs> But what do you do with that? How, how am I to have this influence? And, and what does the world... Well, let me just start with this question here for you. Why does the world even need salt and light? You know, because there's some people who think, ah, the world doesn't need that. In fact, I remember when I first came to New Zealand 21 years ago, people used to always ask me, you know, why, you're, why are you here? You, why did you come from the United States? And so I, you know, I tell them why I'm here, and I even, I even had some New Zealanders tell me, "We're a Christian nation. Why did you come here? We don't need you." Wow, interesting response. So why does the world need salt and light? Well, it needs salt. To, let's start with that because the world is corrupt, and by world, you understand, I'm talking about people. People are corrupt. Uh, People need light because they're dark. They're living in the dark, spiritually speaking. And so the biblical worldview is that the the world and people in this world are corrupted and decayed. It's a dark place, and it's sadly getting darker. Look what 2 Timothy 3, verse 13 says. It says, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to not better. The Bible says they're, they're going from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So the world's not getting better. The Bible tells us it's getting worse. And so the world cannot do anything but get worse. And you say, well, why? Why? Is there no hope for this, this world? Well, you need to understand, it has, the world has no inherent goodness. Uh, there have been some theologians in the past who talked about that uh, within every one of us there's this spark of divinity. Well, there is no spark of divinity within an unbeliever. Yeah, you're made in God's image, but Jesus says, I'm the only one who is good. So there's no inherent goodness. There's no inherent spiritual and moral life in, in which the world can grow. And so what happens is that year after year, this evil system we call the world is just accumulating more darkness. It's, the light is absent. 
It was not many generations after the fall there in Genesis chapter 3 that the uh, Yahweh, it says uh, in Genesis 6 verse 5, it says, Yahweh, look at this, Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So because wickedness was so great on the earth, God destroyed every person. You know about the flood, don't you? God saved eight people. Only eight people out of all the whoever, I don't know how many exactly there were on the earth. And of course, we know they weren't perfect either. And then a few generations after that, we we read in the Bible, the the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were, were so rotten, so evil, that God destroyed them. He destroyed them with fire and brimstone. The Bible says another day of judgment is coming when God's going to do something similar to that. He again will rain down fire on the earth. But that destruction is going to be a terrible holocaust, far worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. It's going to be worse than people's worst nightmares. It'll be worse than even Hollywood makes it out to be. Because look what the Bible says, 2 Peter 3, verse 7. It says, But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. Talk about global warming. God believes in global warming, but it's God-made global warming here, right? He's reserved it for fire. and it's Notice he says it's being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That's a terrible judgment. Why would God do that? Why would God destroy this present earth and all of the heavenly bodies in this universe? Why would He do that? Because... Man is infected with a deadly virus called sin. And the only cure for this deadly virus is God Himself. Unfortunately, most people don't want their sin cured. We don't want, they don't want their sin cured. A lot of people don't see the seriousness of their problem. They love their corruption and they hate God's righteousness. And that was Jesus' very... Uh, indictment of this world in John chapter 3. Look at this. Jesus said, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And the people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Jesus knows the very people whom he has made. He knows what's in their heart. What's the problem here? They don't want Jesus, who is the light of the world, because their deeds are evil. They love their sin. In other words, that's what, he, that's what he's saying. And it's interesting, some scientists, by the way, have proposed that they can fix people's problems. They, they, they can get to the root of the problem. 
you know, if we just have surgery on someone's brain, maybe we can fix them. Or uh, some have even proposed very careful electronic stimulation of the brain can fix their problem. So a person's bad impulses can be eradicated by electricity or the scalpel. (laughs) And others have proposed the ideal person will be genetically engineered. Kind of similar to what, you know, Adolf Hitler was thinking, the Nazis were thinking, you know, we're going to come up with this Aryan race, right? We're going to genetically engineer it to, to make people come to be perfect. So question, what does God think about that? <laughs> what does God think about that? Well, God actually tells you what he thinks in the Bible, and he says that every part of mankind is corrupt. So how can you get better if every part of you is totally corrupted? You can't. There is no spark of divinity within us. So he has, and by he, I mean mankind has no inherent, naturally good traits that can be isolated from the bad ones. The scalpel can't do that. Electronic stimulation can't do that. Gene splicing can't do that. If all of your genes are corrupted, how can you split good ones from bad ones when there are no good ones? You can't. If your mind is totally corrupted, where's the scalpel going to cut to take off the bad and leave good? It can't. Right? Your whole being is corrupted. So Your mind, your emotions, your will, everything about you has been corrupted the total nature is depraved just read your the bible for example even david understood this truth in the bible when he he talks about his sinfulness from even from the moment of his conception from his mother in psalm 51 verse 5 david says behold i was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me so notice it's not his environment that has corrupted him it's not he's not a sinner because he sinned why was david a sinner why did david know he was a sinner because he was born in sin he's a sinner by nature that's every one of us and so there's no good part in us from which a better part can somehow be constructed or from which our corrupt part can be isolated that's impossible so that's why the prophet jeremiah says this he says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick so you 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 are deceitful you are sick so so far what i'm trying to show you here is the world needs salt and light the the world needs the influence of christians because it is corrupt and because it is dark but god has a plan he didn't just tell you this is relevant. He's not answering just, he is answering the so what here. Why is this important to you? But he's also given us a plan. Now what is God's plan for the influence? The plan is just basically influence the world. He has made us disciples. We're called to minister to the world, but at the same time he's also called us to be 
separated from, not from the people, we're to be separated from the world's values, their belief system, their ways. Now sadly, uh, some and, and many within the church today seem to be more influenced by the world than they are influencing the world. They're, they're being corrupted by the world. And so, so may, sadly, you, you look at some churches and you say, well, are they having a positive, godly influence in their communities in this world? And sadly, in some cases, we say no. Now, it's interesting, you look at these verses here, verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, you. You. Now, that is emphatic in Jesus' words here. And by emphatic, I just mean the idea is just, he's saying, you are the only salt and light. There is nothing else. That's the idea of Jesus' words here. You are the only light of the world. You are the only salt of the earth. The world's corruption is not going to be slowed or stopped. Uh, Its darkness will not be illuminated uh, unless God's people do what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, Unless God's people, the Christians, are the salt and the light. Another thing we, we can learn from verses, that, that just that one word, you, is it in the Greek, it's plural. <laughs> that's interesting. That, that shocked, to be honest, that shocked me when I first found that out. Because we tend to be very individualistic, particularly in our applications. But Jesus is saying, not you as, as singular, but you, plural, are salt and light. You say, okay, Pastor Scott, what does that mean? Can you just get your point? Well, the the plural pronoun there is telling us it's not you as an individual, but it's the whole body, the the body of Christ, the church, is called to be the salt and light. Do do you understand the difference? It's, It's like, take look at it this way. Jesus is saying, don't be just one little grain of salt. Okay, that one little grain of salt will be an influence. Now, Jesus is saying, my church as a whole, lots and lots of grains of salt together, go be an influence. You see the difference? I've given you a picture of salt. You should know what that is, I hope. And and, and here's the point. Because each grain of salt has a limited influence, it's really hard for one little grain to go, to go, go have much effect, right? Here, it's only as the church is working together collectively, scattered in the world, that change is going to come. That's the only hope. And it's the same with the light in this passage, right? He said, Jesus says, be the light of the world. Think about that. One little speck of light has very limited influence. One ray of light isn't going to accomplish a whole lot. But think about it. You put lots of little lights together into one big one, it can have a massive effect. And that's the point that Jesus is making. So let's talk about the the, the next word in your text there. Because Jesus says, you are. You are. Notice Jesus didn't say, you do. You are. 
Let me give you a little English lesson. If you're, if you're challenged by English, I'll give you a little English lesson. It's for free. You don't have to pay for this. The word are is a being verb. In English, there's being verbs and there's action verbs. Action verbs are stuff you do, like you, you run, you walk, you swim, you write, you read, you work. Right? Those are all action. There's a lot of action verbs in English, but there's also some being verbs. In other words, this is what you're not doing something, it's what you are, and this is an example of that. So Jesus says, you are this. And R is stressing not doing something, but what you're supposed to be. Another way of looking at this, Jesus is stating a fact. He's not commanding you to do something. Jesus is not requesting you to go be salt and light. He's saying, this is what you are. You're already salt and light. Do you see the difference? Salt and light represent what Christians are. And so the only question is, whether or not we're tasteful salt and effective light. See, you're already salt and light, but how good are you at that? And so the very fact that we belong to Jesus Christ makes us His salt and light in the world. And by the way, it's important to note that you're not really the source of the salt and the light. Jesus is the source in you. He's the source of that taste He's the source of that light in you. You can't produce this on your own. And, and Jesus, that's why Jesus says in John 9, verse 5, He says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Notice Jesus says that He is the light of the world, not you. Now at this point, somebody might want to argue with me, and that's fine. Now you might say, but uh, uh, Pastor Scott... It says in Acts chapter 2 that Jesus went to heaven. Right? Jesus went to heaven. He's ascended to the Father. He's at the Father's right hand. Uh, Doesn't that make a problem here? Christ left the world. That's true. And now that he has left this world, what has he done? Did he leave the world without light? No. His light comes into this world through all the people whom He has illuminated, whom He has enlightened. And so, as disciples of Christ, we're to shine forth. How do we do that, though? Because we're not the source. We do it through reflected light. Through reflected light. Uh, think of, you can think of yourself as like a mirror, right? Mirror is, has no source of light. But a mirror can reflect light. It can be quite powerful, in fact. right? So think of yourself as a mirror. You're not the source. You're reflecting the light of the world to a dark world. Well, the Bible put it this way in Ephesians 5, verse 8. It says, for at one time you were darkness. You were an unbeliever at one point, right? Living in the dark. Your soul was dark. But Ephesians says, but now you are light in the Lord. And then the Bible says, walk as children of light. So you can. You can walk as children of light. You can reflect Christ uh, because of the light of the world who is Jesus in you. 
So you might ask, well then, okay, how are we to influence the world? What, what's this plan here? Well, it starts off here by Jesus saying, you are the salt of the earth. So you're to be salt. Now you need to understand something about salt because there's a little bit of a uh, cultural barrier going on here between what Jesus says and how we tend to use and apply salt today. See, you need to understand, salt has always been a very valuable uh, human commodity. It's, it's a very valuable commodity in our, in our society. Uh, during, during Jesus' day, uh, and even before then, it used to be incredibly valuable, even more valuable than it is today. Uh, during the time of the ancient Greeks and the Romans of Jesus' day, it's interesting, the word they use for salt is the word theon. That might sound familiar to another Greek word, right? You've heard of the Greek word theo, theos, right? We, we, we could talk about God as a theos or divinity. Well, that's the idea here. Salt was called divine. And, and sometimes in our English, we, uh, we, even, we even call some foods, we, we might even say, if it was really delicious, we might say, well, that was divine. That was Theon. <laughs> well, that's, that's what Jesus calls salt. He calls salt Theon. And the Romans held that, by the way, except for the sun, there was nothing more valuable to the Romans than salt. And I found it interesting as I was studying. Often Roman soldiers were paid in salt. That's how valuable it was. It was like money. And have you ever heard that phrase, not worth his salt. Any of you ever heard that? Not worth his salt. Well, it actually comes from the ancient Romans. Because when they would pay a Roman soldier, sometimes they would pay the Roman soldier with salt. And if he was a worthless soldier, well, <laughs> kind of like some employees today, right? They're not worth their salt. Well, in numerous ways, Jesus hearers would have understood what this meant and probably far better than we understand it. And that's why I'm taking the time to explain it. It represented a valuable commodity. They knew that Jesus is saying his followers were to have an extremely important function in this world. Why? Because salt always stood for that which was of high value and of high importance. It was very important. Now, there's all kinds of ideas on this. If you read commentaries, you'll get all sorts of ideas. Let me just give you some of them, okay? Here's some of the ideas of what salt is and what salt does. For example, some have said, well, salt is the color white and represents purity. And, uh, well, that <clears throat> what do you do? Because I like Himalayan salt. <laughs> I like the pink salt. So does that mean I'm, uh, uh, you know, what do you do with that anyway? Uh, yeah, a lot of salt is white, isn't it? And, and so some would say, well, Christians are to be pure in this world. We're to be God's means of helping purify the world, to, to restrain the evil. And yeah, that's true. The Bible does talk about that. But that doesn't seem to be the main point here. You think about it, because saltiness 
uh, saltiness, not the color, is the issue, right? Jesus points that out in that next phrase in verse 13 because he talks about the salt having lost its taste, not its color. Right, so so the issue with Jesus is the taste, uh, the part of the influence there. Well, another view is that salt adds flavor, when it certainly does, doesn't it? We, a lot of people love salt, and that's why my favorite potato chips are salt and vinegar. Yummy, right? I love that that salty, vinegary taste. It's yummy. I love putting some salt on my on my burger and my steak. It it just tends to enhance the flavor. And some have said, well, the Christians are to add divine flavor to the world. Make it taste better. Well, in some senses that principle is true. But the problem with that view is that from the earliest days of the church, the world has considered Christianity to be flavorless. In other words, not a good thing. (laughs) That's, that's how a lot of the world looks at Christianity. And, and another view is that salt stings when it's placed into a wound. Any of you ever had a cut or of, of some sort and maybe you're sweating and your sweat, which has salt in it, gets into the wound? Well, doesn't that feel really good? That feels so good, doesn't it? Not. Uh, yeah, it, 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 it can sting. And so people say that Christians are too... Sting the world. Prick their conscience. Make the world feel uncomfortable when they're in the presence of the gospel. Okay. Maybe there's some merit to that analogy. Another view is that salt creates thirst. Oh, yeah. Right? You ever had a whole bag of salt and vinegar chips? Any of you ever done that? Because they're so yummy, you just can't eat one of them, right? Or you, you ever had fish and chips that's, you know, whoever did the takeaways put too much salt on it, and you get done and you're like, whoa, I need something to drink, right? Yeah, salt can, can do that. And, and again, there is some merit to salt creating thirst. Certainly God intends for his people to live in such a way and, and to testify before a dark world that, that uh, they're lacking, Hopefully they're going to want to drink of Jesus Christ, uh, this living water, hopefully. And so all of those analogies have some validity. I don't want to attack them, okay? But uh, yes, Christians are to be pure. They should add a certain attractiveness to the gospel. They should be true to God's word, even when it stings and and pricks the conscience. Uh, Their living should create a thirst for God in those who don't know God. Yeah, all of that should be true. But I believe the primary characteristic that Jesus is emphasizing here is what often salt was used in Jesus' day was for preserving things, preserving food in particular. And sometimes we still use salt this way, right? We put salt in bacon, and uh, sometimes when I... uh, I carve off the skin of an animal. Uh, if, if I want to keep the skin of an animal, I put lots of salts on that skin to preserve it. Because otherwise it goes yucky and stinky and, and it's worthless. Salt has that ability to do that, to preserve things. And so Christians are a preserving influence in the world. They're, they're slowing 
and retarding this moral and spiritual spoilage that we see going on around us. And so when the church is taken out of the world, and that, of course that's going to happen at the rapture, but when that does happen, what's going to happen to the world? Well, if you read your Bible, we, we see that Satan's wicked power is going to be unleashed in unprecedented ways. The leash will be taken off Satan, and he will be able to run around free, doing as he wishes. Evil will go wild, the demons will be unbridled, and once God's people are removed from this earth through the rapture, the Bible says it's only going to take seven years for this world to just fall apart and to descend into utter chaos. And until that day, Christians have a very powerful influence in our world. We're we're to have an influence in our communities, in in the governments, in our countries. I like the way Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones, who pastored in London, England, he he put it this way as as he was commenting on the influence of Christianity even in England and how Christianity had a huge influence there in England as opposed to France which just fell into despair through the French Revolution what was the difference between France and England very illuminating look what Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones says quote most competent historians are agreed in saying that what undoubtedly saved England from a revolution such as that experienced in France at the end of the 18th century was nothing but the evangelical revival. This was not because anything was done directly, but because masses of individuals had become Christians and were living this better life and had this higher outlook. The whole political situation was affected And the great acts of Parliament, which were passed in the last century, were mostly due to the fact that there were large numbers of individual Christians found in the land. End quote. By the way, that same thing could be repeated as you go over to the United States. Because the the planting of the United States, the country of the United States, is happening around the same period as the French Revolution. Why is there such a vast difference, the French Revolution, to the English, what happened in England and the U.S.? It's because of the godly influence of Christians. Huge, huge difference in the consequences. Because, as many have said, ideas have consequences. Well, how are we, how are we, sorry, how are we to influence the world? Jesus says, first of all, by being Salt. Notice the second thing he says. You're to be light. Sorry, not be light. You are light. Again, Jesus uses that being verb. This is what you are. You are light. Now I want you to see the difference here. Why would Jesus use salt and light? Well, he's he's showing you a difference. He's showing you a contrast. And some have, have described it this way. So I'll put it on the screen here for you. So here's the way salt is. Salt is hidden. It's, it's working secretly. It, it, it works from within. It's an indirect influence. It works through our living, largely negative, and it retards corruption. Or it's, 
it's slowing the corruption and the depravity in the world. So that's kind of the characteristics of salt. Let's think about think about how light is different from salt. Obviously, light is very, very obvious. It's something that's working openly in the culture. And it's working from without. It has a direct influence. Works primarily through what we teach and preach. It is more positive and it helps produce righteousness. So I found that, that helpful in the comparison there between salt and light. Very different. Jesus and, and even the other apostles talk a lot about light. For example, look what the Apostle John here says in 1 John 1, verse 5. He says, this is the message we have heard from him. From Who's the him? From Jesus. So he, the light of the world, tells one of these mirrors, his disciples, some stuff. And so John says, we've heard it from Jesus and we proclaim to you that God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So my friends, light is not given simply for you to just have, but you're to live by this light. It is to affect all of you for the purpose of not just you, but others. In fact, you're to walk by this light because Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word, that's God's word, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's a light. It helps you. In, the walk, in your walk through life. And God's light is, is, is there for you to walk by, and it's also there for you to live by it. Now, what are we talking about? Well, in the fullest sense, God's light is the revelation of His Word. And by word here, I mean it is in word in two senses, okay? It's talking about the written word of Scripture, but it's Jesus described himself as the living word. Right? John 1, for example. John 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's talking about Jesus. We know that because verse 17, sorry, 14, talks about the word dwelt among us. We've seen him. We know him. He's full of grace and truth. That's talking about Jesus. He's the living word. By way of application, just just think for a moment. We, as God's people, are to proclaim God's light in a world that is just engulfed in darkness. We're to do what Jesus did, who He was the light of the world. He comes into the world, and what did He do? Well, let's look at Jesus' words. Here's what the Bible says about Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, verse 79, it says, Jesus or Christ, came to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. 
That's one of the purposes of why Jesus came. That's what it says about Jesus. I'm, I'm coming to give light, spiritual light. So Christ is a true light. You're a mirror. You're a reflection of the true light. So you can also think of Jesus as the sun and you're the moon. Right? You know the moon has no source of light. That should be obvious. What is the moon doing? The moon's just reflecting the light of the sun onto the earth. And, and you get this idea from passages even like, look at this one, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So question, my friends. Do you understand how God sheds His light on the world? God wants to shed His light on the world. How's He doing that? He's doing it through people who have received this light. How do you receive the light of the world? Through Jesus. Jesus is that light of the world. Those who receive Jesus that are then able to reflect His light to the world. Again, look at this, Philippians 2, verse 15. It says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. You are a light. Now that's interesting because if you look at that verse there in Philippians 2, by its nature and by definition, light must be visible in order to be illuminated. Because you can hide light. Did you notice Jesus talks about that here? He talks about, uh, see, in verse 14, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He talks about, in verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and then you put it under a basket. No, don't do that. He's, he said you put it on a stand so it can... It can have its influence in the room and light up the room. Don't hide the light. Don't cover it. What good is it? (laughs) Christians need to be more than just an indirect influence. You also need to be direct. You need to be something that's noticeable in this world. And so the passage says here, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So there should be no kind of a Christian you might label as a secret agent Christian. (laughs) I remember uh, many years ago talking to a woman. As you know, I love people giving their their testimonies of how they came to Christ. She described herself as a secret agent Christian. I couldn't help but laugh. I was thinking of this passage. My friend... Don't be a secret agent Christian. Jesus says, be one of these cities. The church is to be a city set on a hill where everything around can see it and be drawn to it. Lights are to be illuminated. Lights aren't to be hidden. They're to be displayed. They're not to be covered. Now, there's some some danger involved in God's plan here. You say, well, what is the danger? Well, basically, the danger is failure. So notice what Jesus talks about in verse 13. When he talks about salt, he says, 
Salt is in danger here of being useless. Because he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So what's the danger of salt? As Jesus talks about you, he says the danger is you become useless. So let's talk about salt here. Much of the salt in Israel, and of course Jesus understood that, and that's why he's illustrating it here. But he understood much of the salt around Israel there was contaminated with other things, like gypsum and minerals that didn't taste good. And so you can imagine if your salt was contaminated with gypsum and other things that didn't taste good, you, you wouldn't want to eat it. You wouldn't, want to, you wouldn't want to waste a good steak by putting yucky stuff on it that makes it intolerable. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. See, there, there was some kind of salt that made your food repulsive. It made it yucky. And so when a batch of contaminated salt would somehow find its way into Israel, find its way into someone's household, and they discovered that, do you know what they did with it? They did exactly what Jesus is talking about here. They would throw it out. They wouldn't keep it in the house. That's yucky. It's repulsive. They would throw it out. People would be careful uh, where they would throw it, right? Do you, do you know what happens if you would throw salt into your garden? What happens if you throw salt on your plants? You know, if you're growing some veggies, what's, what do you think is going to happen to your veggies? You throw a lot of salt in your veggies, you say, goodbye veggies, right? They're, they're going to die. You don't, you know, farmers don't spread like, you know, heaps of salt out in their paddocks. That wouldn't be real good for your paddock and grass and everything going on there. You can kill stuff by doing that. Instead, what they did is they would throw it out on a path out on the road where eventually it just gets ground into the dirt and kind of just disappears. And so there's a sense here in which salt cannot really become unsalty. It's still salty, but it just didn't taste good. It's lost its tastiness, its yumminess, and that contamination has made the salt lose its value. Do you see Jesus' analogy and illustration here? He, he's, he's saying, be careful. Don't become contaminated to the point where you become worthless and useless, where you, be, where you lose your value. You don't want to lose that function. Now, my friends, let me kind of flip that over and address there's some people kind of take these verses and go too far with them. We need to be careful here as we listen to Jesus' words. See, some people think that Jesus is saying you can lose your salvation. Right? You, you lose your saltiness, and so and, and, you know God's just going to throw you out into the street, and you know, you're going to get trampled on. No, that, um, the point here is not losing your salvation. So just as salt cannot lose its inherent saltiness, <laughs> that's not the point. See, Christians can lose their value. A Christian can lose their effectiveness when we allow sin and the world into us and, and the sin in the world contaminates us. 
So the warning is, don't become tasteless, lest you become disqualified. That's the warning. Don't become disqualified. Now the danger when it comes to light, my friends, is this, that light is in danger of becoming useless. Salt can become useless, so can light. Can light lose its essential nature? No. Right? Even a light that is hidden, if you put a light under some sort of a basket and you hide that light, is the light still shining? Yes. The, the, the essential nature is still there, but what's happened? The light is now useless because it's hidden. A hidden light is still light, but it's a useless light, and, and that's why he, people don't tend to hide that. That's why we tend to put lights on lampstands or up on a ceiling or someplace that's going to shine. We want that light to be useful. But that's the danger here. Christians, we Christians, can become useless. So Jesus is warning you, don't don't allow the world to contaminate you. Don't allow sin to contaminate you to the point where you become useless. So what is our purpose? Jesus ends by highlighting our purpose, which is the really the first of many catechisms answers that purpose. Often the first catechism is, what is the chief end of mankind? In other words, what, what is your purpose in life? It is to glorify God. And that's the basic idea of verse 16, when Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now you'll notice that word there in verse 16. That little word good is a very important word. The word good that Jesus uses here does not so much emphasize the quality as it's talking about its attractiveness. It's more talking about its beautiful appearance. In other words, as Jesus talks about people here, He's saying people should see the beauty of God, that God is working in and through us, to, to see those good works that we do, and, and, and then to see Christ, to see God in us. So that's why Christ commands us here, let our lights shine. Don't hide it. Let it shine. And by the way, light is not something that, again, you, you and I can't create this. We can't do good works in and of ourselves. We can't somehow muster this up and make this up. It's something we are allowing God to do through us. Like Jesus says in John 15, right? You can't do this only as you're connected to Him that He does the work through you to produce that fruit. So it's God's light. And so our choice here is, what are we going to do? Are we going to hide the light? Are we going to let that light shine? Now, what's the purpose of the light? According to verse 16. Purpose is, you're to let the light shine. You're, you're, you're doing these good works through Jesus. It's that's your good works, and, and it's not about you. It's not so you get a pat on the back and somebody says, Oh, good boy, or good girl, or wow, you're amazing. It, it's not to bring attention to ourselves, but hopefully you do some 
good work, whatever that is, and somebody says, wow, Jesus, Jesus must be amazing. I'd really like to know more about him. Hopefully that's the kind of response you get. So our intent should be others hopefully see God in order they can then glorify the Heavenly Father. Our good works are magnifying God's character. Hopefully if you show grace, if you're full of grace and truth, then someone else will see that Jesus is the one who is really full of grace and truth. Glorifying God is the supreme call of your life. You're to give the right opinion of God. So when someone reads you, what kind of God are they reading about? When someone sees you and they listen to you and they watch your life, what kind of God are they learning about? So Jesus says, don't be useless, be useful by correctly, faithfully portraying me to this dark world, this corrupt world. So everything we do is to cause others to praise God. After all, He is the one who is the source of this good. He's the source of the light. So here's the question, my friends. You say, well, what about those who cause people to be attracted to them rather than God? Sadly, there's even people who claim to be teachers for Jesus. They, they claim to teach in Jesus' name, and it seems like the world seems to be drawn to them instead of the God they're supposed to be teaching about. What about them? What about those kind of people? It just seems to, it's all about them. You know, they're the ones getting rich. They're the ones getting the fame. Well, the answer is, if we cause people to be attracted to us rather than God, we can be sure that what they're seeing is not God's light. It's something else. They're, we're having the wrong effect, the wrong influence. It's not a godly influence. Remember the proposition? What does God want us to do? What, what is Jesus teaching us? Jesus is teaching that God wants us to have a godly influence on this world. And so let's, let's just be careful. This is what we are. You're salt, you're light if you're a Christian. The question is, are you useful or useless? I read about a man named Robert Murray McShane. He's an example of one who had a bright light, even for one who didn't live all that long. Back in the 1800s, he was a godly Scottish minister during those 1800s. But during his lifetime, he was a bright light. He was very tasty salt. It was said his face carried such a hallowed expression that, it's hard to believe, but it, it was, it, this is what I read about him, that when people looked at him, people were known to fall on their knees and accept Jesus Christ as their Savior when they looked at him. I'm just telling you what I read. I know it's hard to believe, but... It was also said that others were so attracted by the beauty and the holiness of his life that they found Jesus Christ to be irresistible. <laughs> well, may that be said of us. That is the kind of salt and the light that God wants his people to be. 
He wants us to be useful for this high purpose of glorifying Him, giving the right opinion of Him. May that, may that be true of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank You for Jesus' awesome, precious teaching. Uh, we, we know how we are to live in this world. Uh, you, you've told us we can expect to be reviled and persecuted for Your name's sake and on the account of the Gospel. You've told us that we are to rejoice and be glad. May we look to our reward. May we look to uh, the prophets and the apostles and other Christians who have gone before us. May we recognize who we are in Christ. Our identity here is well defined. We are salt and light. We are to have this influence. We are to be useful, not useless. We pray you would show us our sin that would be contaminating us. May we show us the worldliness in us that is that is softening the influence and maybe giving a, a the wrong impression to the unbelievers around us. May our church and the Christians as a whole in this world accurately reflect the light of the world. Would you show us our sin, show us our worldliness, so we would repent of that so that we can be useful, very, very useful in this world until you come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.